Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. Just me today. Um, Alexi is busy with some uh, other matters, some urgent business he needs to attend to. And so I'm just holding down the fort by myself uh, today. And um, a little bit of a uh, bits and bobs episode, not n- um, nothing uh, quite uh, coherent subject wise. But I wanted to start out by, uh, you know, wishing and a hearty send off rest in peace to Beverly Cleary, a children's book author who died today, uh, March 26, 2021. She was 104 years old. And, you know, th- this is someone I hadn't thought about in a long time. But, you know, if you're about my age, I'm 35 uh, I, I suspect, um, that you probably grew up, uh, reading a lot of her books, uh, over the years and many books that I, I hadn't even thought about in a long time. You know, the, the, the Henry Huggins series, um, Beezus, uh, Ramona Quimby, um, and the, the, the mouse and the motorcycle, that's something that 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 I a book I loved when I was a kid and I hadn't even thought about it and I didn't even remember that she was the one who wrote it but it was a great you know just I probably read that book 50 times when I was a kid and um really enjoyed it so you know if listeners have young children um you know, there's a little bit of 1950s kind of Americana in there, but I think they're really excellent books um, for children, especially the mouse one. That was maybe my favorite. It's the most kind of surreal and kind of like magical realism type of thing about a sentient mouse who can talk to people and ride a motorcycle. That and the 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 sequels, Runaway Ralph and Ralph S. Mouse. Great books for kids. And so I heartily recommend those for parents and kids, if you may be listening. And, um, you know, pour one out for Beverly Cleary. Uh, a long, a long life, certainly full of years, as they said, uh, as they say in the, in the, in the Bible about, uh, you know, the ancient, um, Israelites. I also wanted to, to, as, as long as we're noting people who have died, uh, today, uh, Larry McMurtry, the novelist, um, you know, the, the sort of stereotyped as a sort of cowboy Western fellow, uh, he also died. And, um, as a guy, you know, he's sort of like classed in, I think, with like Zane Gray and similar type of, uh, you know, romantic old Western type of fellows, but, um, really quite an excellent writer, you know, and if you've never, um, you know, picked up a uh, lonesome dove or the last picture show, uh, r- really quite, quite good wishing his family a, uh, you know, uh, all the best and, um, you know, a great excuse to go back and, and, uh, pick up some of those, uh, classic works. So on to, you know, some more topical stuff. So the first thing I want to talk about is this, um, uh, the, the state of the business press 
and uh, financial journalism in the United States and, and, and how that is Im- impacting uh, politics. And, you know, perhaps a, a good place to start is with a couple of articles that were, that were written on, on Medium by, you know, a couple of economist wonks. Um, we have uh, the first one, supply and demand, the chip shortage in macro context, talking about, of course, the semiconductor shortage that is aff- afflicting the globe and has been for months now. You know, if you if you've been looking to get, you know, an, a, a PS5 or, uh, you know, one of the new Xbox, whatever that is, series, whatever, um, you know, our new graphics card or, or one of the cutting edge uh, AMD chips, um, they're, you know, they're 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 not available at retail prices. You know, you're you're paying um, double or triple or quadruple that on on eBay. These 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 guys are talking about it. Um, there, there's a second article. We'll link to both of them. It's called "The Brief History of Semiconductors: How the U.S. Cut Costs and Lost the Leading Edge." And so, I think, uh, broadly speaking, these articles are about you know industrial policy and you know kind of the broad interaction of you know you know consumption, you know demand. Um, the 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 consumer and the producer you know on one hand on the one side and the other and you know i can't possibly summarize these articles i do recommend you read them they're they're quite complicated but i think they have a lot to say about like sort of the state of you know policy thinking amongst people who are sort of they're 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 critics but they are plugged into the uh, you know, the, the, the Democratic Party kind of mainstream, at least to some degree. You know, these, these are people I'm talking about, by the way, the first one is written by Skanda Armanth and Alex Williams. And the second one is written by Alex Williams and Hassan Khan. Um, you know, so, so, uh, kind of, you know, quasi outsiders, quasi insiders. You know, these people aren't like bomb throwers, like, like, like me and Alexi, but neither are they Larry Summers. And, you know, their basic message is that, uh, you know, the demand for goods and services, they use, you know, semiconductors as a, as a sort of example of what's going on there. Um, the, the, the demand for, 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 uh, final products for, you know, things that, that are to be made has profound and quite complicated effects on the supply of those goods. Um, and then secondly, that the government, the, the policy choices that the government makes has also a profound impact on, you know, the state of uh, demand, you know, wh- whether consumers have the money in their pockets for, you know, those those uh, devices, for, the, for those goods and services, and whether, you know, the, the s- sort of situation, the status of the uh, domestic and global supply chain um Government policy affects those two things uh, a tremendous amount. The first thing that that I that I'm mentioning here 
is, uh, you know, demand and, and that, that aspect of it is quite simple. You know, um, if, if you are a business, the, you know, your choice is about investment, you know, what, what you're going to, um, what kind of money you're going to sink into your business is obviously going to depend on, you know, your perceived market for the things you're going to sell. And so when you have, uh, you know, a, a, a consuming population, your, your base of customers that is, you know, broke, you are not going to, uh, you know, invest very aggressively. You're not going to see a lot of growth, uh, in the future. And, you, you know, you are going to trim your sales. You're going to try to hold back and, you know, not, um, be too aggressive about, you know, sinking lots of money into things that might not pay off. This is, you know, when, when you say it this way, it sounds incredibly obvious. I mean, it's practically a tautology, but, you know, th this, um, really flies in the face of, you know, decades of macroeconomic thinking, um, that which holds, you know, sort of the demand side and the supply side as, uh, you know, separate and don't really affect each other. Um, and that, you know, that holds most obviously in the case of sort of neoclassical, neoliberal economic models, which says that sort of like supply uh, holds, you know, this is something that proceeds by itself. It has nothing to do with the government. Um, and, you know, there it's just a, a question really in the terms of policy of getting out of the way. Uh, that, that really, you know, when you start talking about labor regulations or, or quality standards, any sort of workplace safety stuff, that's going to slow things down. Um, but, uh, it, it also holds in, in a sort of like popularized Keynesianism in, in a way that I've, uh, advocated myself over the years, kind of inadvertently, you know, just, just through omission rather than commission, I would say. But, you know, you're, you're talking about a recession and, um, you know, you want to restore full employment and you, and you say, okay, you know, the government can spend and restore full capacity. And, you know, that kind of implies, you know, like a fixed supply side of the economy that, uh, you know, like we, you know, we shove in a big old dollop of, of government stimulus. You know, we, we hand out the $1,400 checks or whatever the checks may be. Uh, you know, we have a bunch of investment things. You know, we put people to work fixing roads and bridges and so on. And that will, uh, you know, that, that'll take care of our, you know, momentary problem. We'll get things back up to full throttle. Um, and, and, the the point like that is correct that is a true statement like insofar as you're saying more government spending means you know more demand restoring you know like the the capacity of like your 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 uh, pr producers of goods and services as they exist but the deeper truth that tends to be left out of that narrative is that the you know the long term and medium term investment decisions of uh companies uh also depends on the state of you know demand broadly speaking and and uh, the important thing that they they point out is that the United States has been short of demand 
basically since the dot com uh uh the the collapse of the dot com bubble and that you know but in the in the late 90s you had this huge surge in investment of uh in, into consumer um semiconductors consumer um electronics you know people were there you had full employment and um you know people were just like jumping to get into the you know new high tech businesses but then you had this recession and we never really recovered from the dot com recession and as a result semiconductor um the semiconductor manufacturing sector and probably most other domestic sort of producers have been in a sort of quasi recession since that time things got much worse after 2008 you know you had a protracted period of very high unemployment um but you know you, you never saw after the dot-com collapse, the same level of really vigorous investment, you know, but like businesses dumping money into, uh, you know, new plants, new investment, and, um, you know, hiring the people that would be uh, necessary to produce those things. Until now, you know, now what's happening is you have unprecedented fiscal support uh, going back to the New Deal, you know, I mean, uh, pr probably not since World War II have we seen this level of deficit spending that is being directed to the consumer, you know, because we've had big deficits before, but it was tax cuts for the rich. It was military spending, you know, nothing like the $1,400 checks, nothing like the super unemployment, you know, the $600, now the $300 supplement to unemployment benefits. I mean, you're talking about thousands and thousands of dollars being put into the pockets of normal people. And the thing about normal people, as opposed to rich people, is that when they get money, they tend to spend it. And so what these guys show over at uh, Unemploy America, excuse me, uh, is that that the, 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 the status of the pocketbooks of the average citizenry has a profound impact on the state of investment and, um, you know, what businesses are, uh, you know, the decisions they are making, uh, about, you know, the, the, the medium term and the, and the long term. And what we've been seeing over the past year is a huge surge of investment in, into, um, you know, c uh, computer equipment, uh, manufacturing into semiconductor manufacturing. And, um, you know, because they're seeing a huge profit, there's, there's tons of money to be made and, uh, you know, everyone is behind and there's this huge demand. I mean, you know, you see, uh, in the market, just a terrible shortage of all of these things. And it's not just affecting, by the way, like consumer electronics. You're, you're hitting, I mean, they're, uh, semiconductors are in everything. They're in cars. They're in TVs. They're in your fucking washing machine, probably. They're in your, uh, dishwasher, uh, your refrigerator. I mean, practically any kind of durable consumer good now has some kind of semiconductor in it. These guys show. That, uh, you know, the, the basically the, the United States domestic manufacturing capacity of semiconductors has been left to rot over the last 20 years. 
and we're only just now starting, starting to pick up the pieces and, uh, you know, um, come back into something like a, 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 a durable, um, system of domestic production. And this, this is interesting for, for a number of reasons. Because, you know, first of all, it sort of puts a lie to, uh, you know, like free trade, neoliberal economic, you know, thinking about, uh, the, the best way to sort of set up a, you know, a global system of production. Because what has happened under free trade is that you get sort of like monopolized, uh, very fragile supply chains. You know, that there, if there's real stiff competition and, um, very little, uh, you know, sort of profit in the system and, uh, things will go to the cheapest place where they can be manufactured. And that's been for the last 20 years, uh, though, though less so somewhat recently, it's China, it's China and Taiwan and, uh, you know, a a few other countries and the domestic United States manu, uh, semiconductor manufacturing is, is, somewhat negligible compared to that these days. Um, and that has, you know, it, it's great for profits for those companies that manage to sort of consolidate the market in the short term. But it is long-term bad for the overall innovation and, um, uh, you know, resilience and uh, ultimately productive capacity of the whole system, um, you know, because you have uh, you have no slack in the system and the slack, you know, sort of summarizing a lot of points that they're making in here. And again, I do recommend reading these articles. They're, they're somewhat complicated, but but, uh, you know, any any layperson can understand them. Um, having a decent profit margin and being able to invest in the future with that horizon of you know, long-term markets uh, sweeping out in front of you, it allows you to think beyond the next quarter, you know, beyond the next year or so to to start to um, make plans uh, beyond the, 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 the immediate horizon. And critically, to think about your innovation in terms of labor as much as in terms of immediate profit. You know, because the, the great value of a high pressure, you know, high demand economy is that you have, you know, a sort of chronic shortage of labor. And, um, that puts pressure on companies to uh, think about innovation in ways that, uh, you know, might not pay off in the immediate term, you know, because the easiest way to innovate in terms of costs, you know, to, 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 to juice your profits is to just cut labor costs, move the factory to another company, cut pay, you know, uh, uh, take money out of the pockets of workers and put it in the pockets of executives and shareholders. But the, the really, you know, long-term, um, w- way to increase, you know, productivity and therefore profits, uh, is to actually figure out new ways to save 
on uh, on labor to 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 have more production for less effort. And you know, you, you, cheaping out on labor only saves you money once. You know, you can only go to another country one time. You know, maybe you could find a new country, but like it's it's a it's a one time process. Whereas innovating a new like sort of scientific procedure and a new supply chain around that procedure that could, you know, that can create a, a workable, you know, new sort of uh, system of making computer chips or anything, steel, uh, you know, ships, whatever. Um, that's something that could be done over and over and over again, you know, repeatedly, uh, uh, you know, adding more advanced technology, more advanced techniques, more advanced, uh, you know, methods of labor cooperation and so on, division of tasks. Um, you know, the, the potential is, is, uh, you know, theoretically at least limited, limitless. You, you could end up with no, um, workers needed at all, but. That's something that it, it, it tends to be like difficult and not pay off. And it, and it requires something that, you know, a, 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 a market situation in which that is a realistic possibility. And in fact, maybe a mandatory possibility. And there are a lot of companies, you know, the classic, uh, uh, company of, um, you know, the, the, the semi, conductor and electronics manufacturer of the last like say 15 years or so is Foxconn and Foxconn is not really very innovative they are a a a low wage employer they they take advantage of the cheap labor costs in China they're less cheap now they're moving their factories elsewhere they have very low margins they're very labor intensive. They're very abusive to their employees. You know, I mean, this is the classic suicide nets and shit that you, that we've seen over the years, you know, but that's what the system, you know, a, a, a low pressure economy tends to produce. You have people skimping on their, you know, their probably most expensive input. Uh, namely workers, because there is not enough demand to justify the capital investments that would um, uh, pay off if there were more money in the pockets of the average citizen. And so, you know, the economy is a big circle. My spending is your income and your income is my spending. And, um, you know, this is something that neoliberals have uh, tried desperately to forget over the last, uh, you know, 40 years or so. But uh, it, it's coming through and it's becoming kind of maybe, uh, you know, people are pushing back on it. But the conventional wisdom of, uh, you know, the, the, the Biden administration and the financial press. And I think this is interesting for two reasons. First is how, um, you know, we see, we've talked about Gramsci a lot in this podcast. Um, political argumentation and evidence, it does have its place. Uh, that, like, a lot of people have been convinced uh, in the context of 
you know, traditional economic theories not working out very well. They've been convinced that, you know, a new way is necessary. And and heterodox critics who've been making these arguments for a long time, suddenly they're finding a receptive audience. I think it tends to demonstrate the value of media, messaging, argumentation, and, you know, just broadly speaking, any kind of public communications. It can uh, have an effect. You know, here's, here's a couple of articles in Bloomberg uh, you know, I mean, literally owned by one of the richest people in the world. One on how uh, bond traders have, um, derivative bond traders have have badly uh, estimated the path of future interest rates over the last, you know, 20 years. They, you know, saying that like basically, you know, the 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 efficient markets hypothesis, you know, the idea that like markets have like perfect, uh, information and that, that, you know, whatever, you know, markets predict is going to happen will happen. Not true. It's total bullshit. And, you know, this is what Bloomberg is telling you. Here's another one about how the uh, Congressional Budget Office has also totally uh, gotten wrong, mainly uh, overestimated the cost of, um, you know, the, the trajectory of future interest rates. And that, you know, that directly pushes against austerity politics, you know, because the biggest driver of, you know, the, the, the fears over the budget deficit is that interest rate costs will spiral out of control and that you'll, you know, you'll end up uh, spending, you know, half the government budget on interest payments on the debt. And, uh, you know, you'll have a, some sort of uh, crisis. But in fact, if, you know, the, the Congressional Budget Office and, you know, the traders made the same mistake, almost always overestimating the future trajectory. The deficit is not nearly as big as of a problem. And in fact, you can spend uh, much more than uh, they think. And it's been very interesting to watch, you know, Bloomberg, the Wall Street Journal. You know, we had that we had that episode about, you know, austerity politics in the Wall Street Journal and New York Times these things coming to pass and, and the conventional wisdom sort of changing in, uh, in real time. But perhaps a, a more interesting, you know, sort of theoretical aspect of this is that, you know, th- this is something that it, I don't think would be inherent to capitalism. You know, you, you're talking about you know, spending markets, uh, businesses, and so on. But the same thing would hold true of a totally centrally planned economy that, you know, where, where like the, the, all of the companies are owned by the state, even if there was no markets, you know, the, the, if everyone sort of got their ration coupon or whatever, like any kind of economic system you could imagine would be subject to this same kind of dynamic. The economy is about producing goods and services. Uh, you know, your, your food, housing, medical care, uh, you know, consumer goods. And then on the other hand, the people that are consuming those goods who are, who are taking them in, um, whether they're buying them through a market or getting them allocated by the government um, 
or, you know, through some sort of cooperative, you know, anarcho-syndicalist commune, the, the same dynamics are going to hold. I, I think it, it tells us something interesting that, that really is not, uh, very much anticipated that much in Marx or a lot of the other sort of early socialist uh, theorists, which is that, um, you know, the distribution of, of income or ration coupons or whatever matters a tremendous amount. I mean, I think this can have basically revolutionary effects on political economy. You know, you look at the United States from 1945 to, you know, 1973 or so when, uh, you know, uh, wage increases, uh, tracked with productivity gains. Um, you know, there are lots of unions, basically a kind of high pressure economy. And, uh, uh, compare that to today when you have very high inequality, you have very loose labor markets, you have, uh, very few unions. These things make a very s- enormous difference on uh, the the kind of political economy of a system. E- you know, regardless of how you set it up. You know, there there may be differences, you know, so to speak. But um, I think what the 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 deeper lesson that these these uh, these folks are telling us over at Employee America is that uh, the distribution of income and the system of production, the supply chain, the way that things are transported, assembled, sold, or, you know, uh, moved from producer to consumer in whatever way, all that matters a tremendous amount. I think that that is almost co-equal with the sort of general, um, you know, the, the overarching framework of how uh, an economy is organized. You know, the details are very important. And so, you know, again, I do recommend going through uh, these articles to, to really, you know, really sit with them and think a bit about uh you know what this implies in a more general sense because they're talking about the ways that uh you know the department of defense has uh you know incentivized uh certain like uh you know offshoring and uh a lower investment you know through their choices and and so on and all, all that had like like serious knock-on effects many years later, you know, you end up with a very, very uh, uh, low, like close to the bone type of production model with not much slack and like, oh, you, oh no, there's a ship stuck in the Suez Canal and it fucked up the entire production system because everything is running on a tiny margin of error and we have no um, you know, extra capacity that we could draw on, no slack in the system um, that, that could be used to sort of compensate. And, um, I think that will be, that, that is, is a lesson that is, that is easy to, to miss if you're thinking more broadly, more kind of, uh, you know, top level ideologically about 
how, you know, uh, who owns things, um, you know, uh, whether people are in unions or not. All those things are very important, of course. But it's also important to to really uh, think about and have, you know, I think there's really no way around a competent bureaucracy, which can, you know, sort of set up uh, things that will deliver the goods in the place that they are needed uh, in a, you know, a, a, a reasonable time at a reasonable price. You know, that's just a... A, a challenging thing that uh, somebody has to do. And so this this matters for uh, a number of reasons, but a good example uh, would be, you know, the fate of the early Soviet Union. Um, if you read uh, Stephen Kotkin's biography of Stalin, there's a good section on, you know, the the, the causes of the famine in the 1930s. Um, and the, the, the argument he puts forward, which is, is convincing in my view, is that, you know, when the, when the communists, uh, consolidated control over the Soviet Union and, and set it up, you know, as it existed then, uh, they, they really didn't have a clear idea of what they wanted to do with agriculture. And, um, you know, Lenin had some sort of experimental stuff with his new economic plan, but then he died. And so under Stalin, you had this collectivization of agriculture, which was uh, a- a- attempting to, um, you know, uh, increase the productivity of agriculture such that uh, they could use the surplus to kickstart industrialization. And what Kotkin argues is that this was a complete disaster and that in fact the the collectivization you know um ended up harming the course of soviet industrialization which which did happen very quickly but this was you know in part due to lucky circumstance so there the soviets being a, a good market for a lot of western producers and uh, indust- and industrialists and uh you know uh, steel manufacturers and so on who uh suddenly had no no market in uh, because of the depression and the collectivization experiment just ended up reducing the amount of food that was produced. And the huge requisitions from the government just ended up starving uh, millions of people, especially in Ukraine. And so, you know, uh, if, if you have a super ideological conception of like, you know, the, the relations to the means of production and so on, it can blind you to, you know, the the detailed mechanics on the ground for how, you know, uh, uh, actual commodities and so forth are produced. And it's very important to keep your eye on what is going on and to adjust your sort of picture of the situation to make sure that you aren't, you know, causing a famine. Um, so, to co- but uh, to bring things back to, you know, current day, uh, and you know the 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 politics of the the current moment. Um, I want to talk about uh, China and 
you know, the, the, the international situation. So I've been talking about semiconductors for, for a while. Uh, you know, the, the, the biggest like technological complex of advanced manufacturing is in China, but there's also a very big one in Taiwan. And there is some informed, uh, supposition, um, and, uh, theorizing predictions that China is going to attempt to take over Taiwan in the uh, near future or medium term. Uh, they, they, they've taken Hong Kong. They just smashed the, uh, you know, pro-democracy movement there. You know, it was just a grinding war of attrition. And it seems like there's basically nothing to be done about it. And the, uh, a lot of, of people think, you know, this isn't a done deal or anything, but that Taiwan is going to be next. And Taiwan has uh, one of the biggest, uh, if not the biggest, uh, singles uh, semiconductor manufacturing company in the world, uh, which is heavily interlinked with the Chinese system. So what is to be done about that? Um, Democrats have been, have been uh, making moves towards uh, pushing basically foreign policy arguments about, uh, you know, the danger of China, uh, to, to, you know, behind this, uh, conception of restoring domestic, uh, semiconductor manufacturing. And they seem to have gotten at least some rhetorical support from Republicans on this. You know, basically the argument being that we can't allow, you know, the United States economy to depend so much on uh, a, a, a a manufacturing supply chain, which is based on a, you know, fundamentally authoritarian and hostile country. Um, and that being a sort of like convenient argument to uh, boost up, you know, domestic employment and uh, incomes and reduce the enormous trade deficit with China and so on and so forth. Um, th- this, I, th- I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not even really exactly sure yet what the correct line ought to be on that, but I think it's something that we should be very careful about you know first of all you know you have this plague of anti-asian bigotry you know uh, the 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 mass shooting in atlanta at a massage parlor trump talking about the china virus you know and then and a, a, a real surge in anti-asian racism that's not something we want to participate in you know and fuel uh, uh by by you know kind of collaborating with the republicans xenophobia about like the the devious the devious chinese you know communist party and so on um and also i think that you know the 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 dangers of sort of cold war politics and uh you know whipping up a, a kind of nationalist frenzy over you know a, a foreign country you, the, uh, that speaks for itself you know the, the you have the example of the the first red scare and the second red scare um you know the the politics of nationalism is not friendly to the left and uh you know you could easily see people who are you know arguing for kind of even just basic liberal internationalism being tarred as traitors, communists, fellow travelers, or useful idiots, whatever. 
Um, it, 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 it's, it's not, uh, it, it, we certainly don't want to stoke a, a, a paranoid frenzy about, you know, the, the Chinese menace. But all that said, we are sort of stuck in a situation where, uh, you know, we, we have this global supply chain centered around China for, uh, you know, the most advanced manufacturing technology. And it really is largely under the thumb of a very, you know, uh, a ruthless authoritarian party. Um, you know, what the Chinese government is doing to the Uyghurs in uh, Xinjiang province is really t- terrible. You know, there, uh, there, there are a lot of weirdos that are, that are involved in sort of pushing this line. But as far as I can tell, you know, there, there's just been absolutely dispositive reporting on it. You know, it's basically a, a cultural genocide or quasi, you know, whatever you want to call it. It's not great. A, r- a real crime against humanity. Um, and uh, also, you know, the just the sheer fact of having there only be one, uh, you know, big semiconductor system in the world is not great for the resilience. You know, as we as as I was talking about previously, um, you know, it, it's nice to have extra capacity in the system so that, for example, if a big ship blocks the Suez Canal. Uh, and, you know, shipments can't get through it. You don't, it's not just a bottling up world trade, uh, along that particular axis for, you know, the, as long as the ship is there. And, you know, the, 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 the value of domestic production to the, uh, you know, to the working class of this country, uh, speaks for itself and to, and, to how that production will lend, you know, uh, some political coherence to the uh, political system in this country. You know, it, it it's I think it's pretty much uh, proved in my mind that Trump got a lot of his political mileage over, uh, you know, the 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 trade deals that have cored out the manufacturing capacity uh, and just, you know, created a concentrated economic devastation in, you know, very politically relevant, uh, states like Ohio, like Michigan, like Wisconsin, like Pennsylvania. Um, and, you know, it, it will be a vital priority to restore some of the balance of, uh, you know, the, the, the global economic system to just sort of keep the, the, you know, uh, foreclose the danger of right wing, uh, you know, quasi fascist, whatever you want to call them, uh, extremist movements on the right from harnessing that political, uh, advantage created by economic dysfunction. Um, and I really don't see any way around, uh, in, you know, in terms of it being necessary to do some kind of rebalancing of the trade system such that, uh, you know, more of the, uh, d- production that is, you know, that, that is created for the American market takes place, uh, within the, you know, American, uh, country. 
And so I think that there's basically no alternative than uh, holding to a sort of a, a, a skeptical internationalist view. You know, I don't think that it is wise to trust uh, uh, the Chinese government that to have the, that it would have the best interests of anything other than you know, itself, you know, it's, and especially the party elite, the Chinese Communist Party. You know, I think this is a very ruthless, uh, authoritarian, uh, government. Um, but, you know, at the same time that, you know, we're living in a bipolar world now, basically two co-equal powers. Um, China, unlike the Soviet Union, by the way, really is a match for the United States pretty much already, in my view, you know, despite the, the, the huge imbalance in military spending, you know, like most of our military is spent on shit that's completely pointless in any sort of actual conflict, you know, aircraft carriers, what are they good for aside from pushing around, you know, poor countries? Um, and, uh, so we're going to have to be able to uh, engage diplomatically with that, that, uh, that, with the Chinese government. And, uh, you know, one, one would hope in a, in a sort of detente fashion, a, a way that, you know, we can try to nudge uh, 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 China away from its worst abuses. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, in a sort of like theoretical great, uh, you know, utopian future in which the United States what didn't have a 20 year, uh, you know, period of, of, uh, just absolutely, uh, bungling, you know, neo-colonialism and stuff. And, and I mean, you know, going back even before 9-11, um, but, you know, in, in, in sort of great power, real politic terms, uh, just kind of dealing with China as as the uh, as the situation develops and not getting sucked into a a cold war and high stakes you know nuclear armed confrontations, but also not um, you know just uh, bending over backwards to 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 not you know piss them off or or uh, you know cause. Um, you know, just sort of abandon Taiwan, for instance, to the tender mercies of Xi Jinping. Um, and, you know, I have no trust in Joe Biden to be able to, you know, thread that needle. Uh, you know, his, his domestic policy has been pretty good so far, but his foreign policy has been deeply disappointing. But for those of us on the left, I think that, uh, uh, you know, threading a needle between, um, uh, just a sort of like anti-American, you know, sort of critique and uh, the, you know, sort of neo-Cold War imperialism. That's where I am at least going to try to land. And, uh, you know, in the context of diplomacy, in the context of the world economic system, in the context of trade and, um, you know, muddle through, I guess. And, uh, you know, so we'll be, we'll be, uh, paying close attention to how things develop, uh, over time. But, um, that's at the moment where I see it. So, um, apologies for a bit of a shorter episode. I am currently dealing with, uh, uh, book edits. The, that book will be coming out in September. It's called, um, how are you going to pay for that? And I hope it will be 
a good relief once I get that finished. Alexi is is dealing with some work stuff himself. But uh, later this week, we will have an interview with uh, Gabriel Rayburn about uh, Eugene Genovese and the 1960s Marxist uh, historians. And so keep your eyes peeled for that. And I will see you all in the next episode. Thanks for listening.